This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of TSC Now. I'm your host, Dan Klein. Before we get into today's episode, just a quick note. We are working on getting the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, so stay tuned on social media for when we become available on those platforms. All right, this month's episode covers a topic that affects 80% of people with tuberous sclerosis, epilepsy. Our guest is Dr. Daniel Curry of Texas Children's Hospital, and we discuss laser ablation surgery and what parents should think about when considering surgery, why he became a neurosurgeon, and what breakthroughs he's most excited about. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Curry. And now we're talking to Dr. Daniel Curry, Director of Functional Neurosurgery and Epilepsy Surgery at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Dr. Curry, thank you for talking to us this morning. Thank you for the invitation. So how did you first become interested in neurosurgery? So I became a neurosurgeon by initially, I was in engineering at the time when I was in college, and I noticed that all of the engineering questions I was very much interested in were more of the biological stent. So I kept leaning into the biology of it, and I began reading a lot of books on, you know, lay books on the brain, people like Oliver Sacks and Harold Clawance and people like that. And they were very inspiring from the point of view of looking at the brain as a system and as basically the, the main machine in which we see our whole world. And that gravitated me further into that area. I realized I needed to go to medical school. So I went to medical school to be a neurologist, to be a, a medical brain doctor. But during my medical school training, one of my first years was in neuroscience. A uh, neurosurgeon named Dick Penn in Chicago, he came in to our medical school class in neuroscience and he brought in a patient of his with Parkinson's and this man had a tremor and what Dr. Penn had done is installed a deep brain stimulator into his brain and he had an, a button that turned it on and off and this man was generous enough to demonstrate for us the impact of this and he was a man who couldn't hold a cup of coffee he demonstrated by holding a cup and it was spilling all over due to his tremor and then the button was pushed and it went away within two seconds. And from that point on, I knew that's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to change lives in that way. And that profoundly changed that man's life as epilepsy surgery changes the lives of the children. And and what is it about pediatric epilepsy and helping kids that drew you to that specific specialty? What's so profoundly effective in pediatric epilepsy is the fact that you're dealing with young developing brains. And those young developing brains and young developing minds are all being created connection by connection through electrical activity inside the brain. As a child stumbles and falls, he'll learn things on how to walk. There's connections being made in his brain. Same idea as the child babbles. He learns what sounds are communicating and which ones aren't, and those connections are being made in the brain. The problem with epilepsy in children when they're in this developmental stage is it, too, is an electrical activity, this time uncontrolled. And so that little learning machine of 80 billion neurons making countless connections to create the networks that make our minds can be disturbed by these uncontrolled electrical storms. And so the child can learn to have seizures instead of learning how to walk, instead of learning how to talk. So if you can interrupt that electrical storming and you can do it pretty quickly, such as a surgical scenario, you can 
really improve that child's development because now all the electrical connections in the brain are the ones that are normally based on that child's trial and error and development. And some of the biggest impacts I've had in children are when you immediately stop their seizures, the mothers will tell us, the families will tell us, my child is profoundly improved, profoundly different. And within a, sometimes overnight or at least a few days, I had one child with tuberous sclerosis, one of the ones that we initially did with laser ablation, say her first word on post-op day one Wow. when I was doing my rounds. It's that sort of impact that really keeps us going. So it seems like your career was shaped by mentors that helped guide you to where you are today. And now going full circle, you're also an associate professor of pediatric neurosurgery at Baylor College of Medicine. In that role, what traits do you think makes for a good neurosurgeon? And what advice would you give to medical students who might be interested in going into neurosurgery themselves? I, as part of my job here, have the privilege of training future neurosurgeons. And it's really one of the best parts of my job. And one of the things I always look for first in someone who's going to be good at this job or someone who's just going to be adequate at this job is one, curiosity. Because despite all of the popular culture hype, neurosurgeons, once they get down to training, tend to do the same things all the time. And it's relatively simple. We're usually dealing with some sort of blood clot or bone or something like that that's pushing on some soft nerve system when we surgically have to take it off. That is the majority of neurosurgery in the world. What we do in functional neurosurgery is we change the behavior of the brain when it has a behavioral problem, whatever the movement disorder or epilepsy or pain or something like that. So what I try to install in my surgeons that I'm training is to be as much of a surgical neurologist as they can be. In other words, come to the table fascinated by the brain. Come to your job fascinated by the brain and its problems and how to fix them, not on your surgical techniques. Techniques are incidental and most people can learn them with eight, nine, ten years of training. It's the fascination of the brain that will make you different and can push our specialty forward. You work at the Comprehensive Epilepsy Center at Texas Children's and so who all makes up that team? So it's a very large team of people. It's really a combination of multiple specialties. The first specialty that's there is what is called an epileptologist, which is a specialized neurologist, a medical brain doctor that just works on epilepsy and how to treat it. And even more subspecialized is the pediatric epileptologist or the pediatric medical brain doctor that just works on epilepsy and how to treat it. So our team has a number of those, 10 of them at this point, that have various roles. And what their job is to do is to examine the child's epilepsy and match the medical treatment to that problem and follow the course of that treatment, whether it's medical or dietary or what have you. The other big part of that team is, of course, us, the pediatric neurosurgeons. We have three of them here, Howard Weiner, I'm sure is no stranger to the TSC world and kind of the father of tuber surgery. He is my surgical partner. And Sandy Lamb, who is a specialist in endoscopic neurosurgery, does endoscopic epilepsy surgery here with us, along with other sorts of operations. She was trained by Gary Mathern, who is a famous hemispherectomy neurosurgeon in UCLA. Us three are the surgical component. And what we do in that team is they we usually are the second stage. When a child has epilepsy, the majority of them, about 70% of them, are going to be treated with medicines. And, that, and the medical neurologists and the epileptologists are handling all of that. It's only when those treatments fail that the surgeons come in. And we then work with our neurologists to not only help localize where the seizures are coming from, but also strategize ways 
process of intervening surgically with that epilepsy. In addition, there are specialists in neuropsychiatric analysis of children. In other words, a rigorous, objective assessment of a child's mind and a child's abilities in the cognitive realm. That takes a special person. We have two of those that are pediatric neuropsychiatrists or neuropsychologists. We have a number of radiologists, people that help us with all of the myriad of imaging studies that we get. We get MRIs and PETs and specs and MEGs, and that's going to need help and interpretation, and that's what our radiologists do for us. And there's those that work on the gross imaging, and there's those that work on the nuclear medicine part of that imaging world. And then there's a number of other people, trainees, fellows, residents, technicians that are part of this very large group. And we, when we're all in a room, there's probably about 50 of us all told that are part of the team. It seems like the approach with the center is really to cover all aspects of epilepsy and what a patient with epilepsy is experiencing and be able to address it from multiple points of view. Is that correct? That is true. That's what we set out to do, and I feel that we accomplish it most of the time. There's not just the diagnosis of the epilepsy that we have to achieve. There is the understanding of that diagnosis in the context of other disease states, which atherosclerosis is clearly one of them. The epilepsy is just one part of their condition, and you have to be able to understand how it fits into the big condition of atherosclerosis. So we have geneticists, we have developmental pediatricians, we have lung doctors and kidney doctors and cancer doctors that all contribute to that effort. And we want to be sure that we are able to apply every treatment paradigm, not just medicines, but diets, stimulation systems, and surgeries. I think that two big aspects of atherosclerosis that I think are requirements these days in dealing with the patients in a comprehensive manner is to one, have a set system for a atherosclerosis clinic, a specialty clinic that's going to look at the global problem. And I think we do that because now there are medicines such as the mTOR inhibitors that can affect the actual disease process, which is bigger than the epilepsy, but it's still, if you get at the major disease process, you won't have to, or you can also get at the epilepsy as well. And that's an unusual scenario in neuromedicine. We're typically having to deal with the epilepsy problem in isolation. But in tuberous sclerosis complex, now with the onset of mTOR inhibitors, we can help treat the disease, not just the symptoms. So that's an advantage. The other advantage that we have, and that I think any center that is trying to be comprehensive in the treatment of tuberous sclerosis needs to offer is all treatment modalities, not just the mTOR inhibitors, but the anti-epileptics, the diet regimens, but also the surgical spectrum. Everything from resective surgery to ablative surgery to stimulation surgery really needs to be on the table for these kids because they're very complex. How so? Well, the problem with tuberous sclerosis, as opposed to the vast majority of epilepsy syndromes, is that you're usually dealing with multiple seizure networks coming from multiple lesions in the brain, and they can all be interacting. So each of the networks can be running by themselves or interacting with another network or node of seizure onset zones. And that becomes very daunting and very difficult to handle. In fact, 10, 15 years ago, that very fact 
excluded them from epilepsy surgery, which was traditionally built on one seizure focus, one good operation, one good outcome. That is no longer the paradigm that we can simplify our lives and limit our lives to do. And I really have to credit Howard Weiner and his group at NYU with Davinsky's influence and guidance to say, no, really, we can do something here. We can help these kids. Surgery is not an exclusion just because they have many targets in their brain and they're disparately located. Like for instance, they can be in the frontal lobe and the occipital lobe simultaneously, or they can be on the left and the right simultaneously, or they can be the deep and superficial simultaneously. That's no longer an exclusion to epilepsy surgery. And the NYU group at that time, I think really pushed that boundary and and helped a lot of children get the benefits of epilepsy surgery that traditionally would not have been considered because the possibility of not curing them was high. Although the possibility of helping them was also high. You can improve them considerably by reducing their seizures and not necessarily curing every one of them. And that's what traditional epilepsy surgery was always trying to do. It was always considered the sort of thing that one should always only endeavor in if you're trying to cure them. Because the risks of epilepsy surgery were so high with open craniotomies and the big exposures and the large surgeries, that's no longer the case. So that's a good segue to moving into discussing laser ablation. In 2010, you were part of the team that developed a protocol for MRI-guided laser interstitial therapy for epilepsy. What was the history of that procedure for brain tumors? And then how did you develop the idea to use the same technique for epileptogenic lesions in the brain? My involvement in the development of laser ablation for epilepsy, I think, has a lot to do with my lucky association with the Houston medical community and Texas Children's Hospital. The machine itself was created by two genius engineers at Texas A&M University. The one was a specialist in lasers, the other one was specialist in MR technologies. And they, after graduation, got together and created a device that united the two. And the reason that it's such a good union is the fact that they were using a laser, like a lot of people had been using lasers in medicine for many, many years, but they were using it to heat up targets and to heat up targets to the point of destroying them. And the problem with that is control. So what the other partner in that engineering group did, who's a specialist in MRI, is he was a master in using an MRI scanner, not just to look at the brain anatomy, but to also look at the brain's heat signature. He perfected this MR thermogram, in other words, a not an MRI, MR image, but an MR thermogram, which then can be connected to the laser computationally. And they were then allowed to do the laser-guided thermal ablation, but then to watch the heat happen, watch the ablation happen in near real time so they can control it. And that was the revolution. That was the big connection. They first applied this device outside the brain, of course, places like the prostate gland and uh, the liver for tumors. But they knew that it was a great tool for cranial applications, but they could not get anyone brave enough to try it in the head right away. It took them a while. They worked out a protocol and they actually tried the first few brain tumors in Paris. And Carpentier is the surgeon that was bravely applying it to brain tumors in Paris. And he was surprisingly successful. They had very little complication. It went in with a very small probe and they were able to destroy tumors 
right there and uh, watched it as it happened, which was the big key. To put it in a little context, we have been putting in probes inside the brain to heat parts up and destroy them since the 50s, but we could never do it in a way that we could watch it actually happen. We had to check our coordinates over and over and over, be very rigorous about where we put it, put it in very carefully, and then we just had a set heat generator that we would simply throw the switch on, you know, 70 degrees for 60 seconds or something like that. But we could never watch it happen. We never had that reassurance, and therefore it wasn't a very commonly applied operation because it was difficult to control. MR-guided laser interstitial therapy, which is its official name, or what I call laser ablation, allows us to watch it happen. And that's been the revolution. So after these brain tumor projects went so well, the company that it made it had some ex-staffers from the Vegas nerve stimulation world that had come to work for this new enterprising company. And they drew on their connections in the epilepsy world to say, hey, who would consider ever using this device? And one of those people that they asked about, or that they asked who, you know, how they would use it was Angus Wilfong, who was here as a pediatric epileptologist and saw this machine theoretically, he's not a surgeon, but he saw it theoretically as a great application for one particularly difficult disease called hypothalamic hematoma, which is a source of seizures that's very, very deep in the brain and difficult to reach. And we usually injure children trying to get to them. So it's not the sort of operation that we're ever very happy to do. So he saw this as a way of applying it, but that's actually a very dangerous operation. So when he initially came to me with this idea, it was my job to make it safe. And so I, I thought it was a brilliant concept, but I knew we would have to test it out in easier things. And it actually was a patient with tuberous sclerosis that we encountered in clinic that was the perfect candidate initially, because he had, as opposed to a lot of children with tuberous sclerosis, he just had one very active, very seizure-inducing tuber in the front lobe of his brain and deep to get to. So it would take a lot of operation, big operation, a big exposure, a big dissection of his brain to get to this tuber, but only a little operation to put this probe in it and heat it. And so with a research protocol in hand and a lot of consenting, we went out to do the first one. And it was remarkably successful. He was seizure-free the next day. He was totally different, according to his mother. He had gone from 20 seizures a night to zero, and he only had a tiny little four millimeter incision in a scalp that you couldn't even see. And so then we knew we were onto something, and it went from there. We eventually did our first difficult hypothalamic hematoma about nine months later, and that became remarkably successful as well. The multiple tuberous sclerosis patient was then done a, first, a few years later, and it was really a remarkable event as well. He was a, a kid that had innumerable seizures throughout the day, about five big active tubers in the frontal lobe. We were able to put a laser in each one of them, and he was virtually seizure-free for about four years until he had a minor re recurrence on one of them and we're going after that one next. In that instance where you are dealing with multiple tubers, is that one procedure or multiple procedures using laser ablation? That is multiple lasers in one ablation setting. What we have done a lot of as well is multiple ablation settings. So there's both combinations. And those were the early days of laser ablation an application to epilepsy and application to tuberous sclerosis in its particular. That patient population, however, became a far more common referral with the arrival of Howard Weiner to Texas Children's Hospital a few years ago 
as chief. He was he, he was recruited to be chief of our service, and he has a very large population of tuberous sclerosis patients needing surgery. And the combination of the large referral base with the minimally invasive techniques done here at Texas Children's, it made perfect sense. You know, I, I give a lot of talks on the topic and I'm asked a lot who the ideal patient for laser ablation is. And there's a few things that jump to mind. One, I think that your seizure focus should be definable. In other words, I can see it on the MRI. It can be proven by minimal physiologic means. In other words, put a few electrodes inside of it and let them have seizures to confirm that's the source. But it also isn't very large because the laser ablation itself, especially with visual ace, can only do a moderate amount of tissue at a time. It can't do a large area. And it has to be deep because the deep targets are more difficult to operate on and more injurious to the patient to operate on than the superficial ones, the ones on the top. The second biggest indication for who's the best patient for laser ablation is multiple lesions over multiple areas. And that is, of course, the tuberous sclerosis population. They have multiple tubers, sometimes spread very widely throughout their brain. And that would mean that if I was going to operate on them together, I'd have to do a very, very large opening to encompass that lesion in their frontal lobe in addition to that lesion in the back of their head in the occipital lobe. I don't need to do that anymore because I can put a tiny probe in each and do the same study and then the same treatment if we indeed can conclude that those areas that we have studied are the source of the seizures. And then lastly, I think the third big aspect to who is an ideal patient in epilepsy for laser ablation and epilepsy surgery are those that have been told that they need epilepsy surgery, have been told that they should get it, it would be beneficial for their child, but are daunted by the, the large operations, the big incisions, all the pain and suffering and hospitalization that goes along with it. I think those folks can be captured with a more minimally invasive operation in which you spend very little time in the hospital and you have very few outward appearances that you've had brain surgery. So you, you mentioned as one of the um, qualifications for being a good uh, patient for laser ablation is having a clear focus of seizure activity in the brain. How do you determine that focus? Like what tests go into really identifying where the seizures are localizing from? So when a patient has epilepsy, they are tried with medicines, they fail with medicines, they still have seizures with the medicines and they're a candidate for epilepsy surgery. So then we go into what do we call a phase one seizure onset zone localization workup. What does that include? Well, it includes a myriad of tests that are all non-invasive, that all have their strengths and weaknesses to give us evidence as to where in the brain the seizures may be coming from. The first and most common one used that most centers can, can, can do is called a video EEG, where you put a number of electrodes on the scalp, and you put the patient on video, and you put them in the hospital, and you let them have some seizures on video so that the epileptologist can see the behavior of the seizure, but they can also can see the changing electrical activity uh, of the brain as reflected by the um, electrical, act electrical activity being picked up on the scalp. That's a good start, but it clearly has some limitations. One, not all seizures are easily localized on scalp EEG. And it's not, not too surprising when you think about why, because really what the scalp EEG is able to 
sample the best are is just the outer surfaces of the brain, the deep parts of the brain, the brain that's un, you know above your eyes or in between the hemispheres or in the temporal lobe. That's so far from the scalp that a lot of the seizure activity doesn't can't propagate up through the rest of the brain and the leathery covering of the brain, the dura and the skull and the scalp to have enough signal to get in those little electrodes you put on the scalp. So you can see it, it's, it's a good start, but it's not very comprehensive. The other thing that we can do is we can look at the metabolism of the brain in two particular um, uh, nuclear medicine scans that we do. One is called a PET scan, positron emission tomography. And what that can do for us is that can see areas of the brain that are either using glucose normally or underusing it. And those areas that are underusing it, as seen by dark areas on the scan, can reflect an area of the brain that's exhausted from continuous seizures because it's chewed up all of its sugars. The other nuclear medicine scan we do is called a SPECT scan. And what that can do for us is that can allow a nuclear medicine scan that where we put a little dye inside the the uh, vas inside the blood vessels just at the beginning of the seizure it has to be done under EEG so we can see the seizure begin on the EEG and then inject this dye what that does is it allows that dye to accumulate in the brain at the area that got the most blood flow in the beginning and that usually is the area that's having a seizure. The thing about the brain that's different from a lot of the other organs is it instantaneously increases its own blood flow when it's active. And so we can, and, and so a seizure that's active will greedily bring in a large amount of blood flow. Therefore, it brings in the dye, and therefore we see it on the SPECT scan image. The, um, other aspect that we do is something called a magnetic encephalogram, and that just is trying to complement the EEG in the understanding that the electrical activity of the brain is going to have a little magnetic behavior of the brain 90 degrees to it. And so with this MEG scan, magnetoencephalogram does is it looks at, looks at the focused changes of magnetic behavior in the brain at the beginning of the seizure and in between the, the seizures. And that ends up in a little dot, what we call a dipole, that then can then be superimposed on the brain scan. And then we can see that this area has a lot of abnormal magnetic be behavior and that there's a high correlation with being the seizure onset zone. So you can see a lot of these tests, you can see they have their limitations. And so we try to get as many as, of them as we can. And we want to make them, we want to have them all agree with each other. Like mm -hmm. each scan tells us that the same structure or the same number of structures is a seizure onset zone. But frequently we don't have that. So we can have some disagreement between one test and another. And so we have to solve the problem by then doing what was called phase two analysis, which is invasive diagnostics. In other words, we put a few, we, these days we choose to put a few small probes 
into the brain, um, fastened to some um, uh, uh, bolts that we put inside the skull. And then with the electrodes in the brain, repeat the video EEG. And this time, watch the video for a seizure to happen, but then watch which electrodes the, the seizures start from. And that's confirmation of the hypothesis or the guess that you've made based on the non-invasive studies. Once you have that confirmed, then you have to do one more thing before you're ready to treat them. And that is to determine which parts of the brain you can't injure without harming their function. The old school term for this is called eloquent areas of the brain. Basically, what we're always looking for is areas of the brain that serve movement and serve language function. And that can be done in a non-invasive way with a number of techniques all put together. Something called functional MRI helps us. That's when an MRI is exquisitely tuned to pick up the tiny little blood flow changes that occur in functions. As I mentioned before, we exploited that blood flow change in epilepsy, but we can also exploit that blood flow change in little functions. Say I'm moving my hand, there's a tiny little change in blood flow of the air of the brain that's moving my hand and that get, can get picked up. We can do the same for language. And if that doesn't work, we can also do some stimulation systems that don't necessarily have to go onto the brain, but can use a focused magnetic field, something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, to stimulate little areas of the, cort the cortex and find areas of language function. And all, and all that assessment of where the functional areas of the brain are located, that's known as phase three. So once you've done all the workup, you've done the non-invasive testing to get a hypothesis to where you think your seizures are coming from. You've confirmed it with a phase two analysis, the invasive monitoring, and you've done testing phase three to find out where you shouldn't operate. Then you figure out where you can operate and decide on what technique to use based on the location of the seizure onset zone, the number of seizure onset zones, the size of the seizure onset zones, and not infrequently the family's wishes on how you wish to proceed with working on that seizure focus. And that's where we choose either to do an open operation for a craniotomy, or we choose to do a laser ablation, or we choose to do a disconnection. In other words, severing some of the connecting tissue of the brain so that that seizure onset zone is still there, but it's isolated. Or lastly, to put in a stimulation system that can suppress the seizures and not have to take it out. And that was, that's, what, that's what we all refer to as phase four. So typically, how long and how many visits go into going through all four phases when um, making a decision about whether to get surgery? 
So in tuberous sclerosis complex, um, the, the, the population and the epilepsy syndromes are particularly complicated. So the very least that we can do is two visits. Because mm-hmm. we do all of our workup on the first visit, then we all get together in a conference and conclude you know, what strategy we're going to take, and then they come back on the second visit to have that strategy uh, follow through on. And sometimes that strategy is a phase two immediately followed by a phase four, um, in other words, a stereo EEG, that robotic way of putting multiple depth electrodes in the brain that are all potential seizure onset zones to determine which one is the true seizure onset zone, immediately followed by a laser ablation or a resection. So two two visits is the minimum. Sometimes the kids are complex enough to need three. Mm-hmm. So we've you've sort of alluded to it, but you let's say you've gone through the four phases. Um, the team has determined that laser ablation is the best option for that patient. How is laser ablation different from a um, traditional craniotomy? So um, laser ablations are very different from craniotomy, uh, although they're still brain surgery. And one thing I always put in my lectures is that laser ablation is brain surgery that doesn't look like it. It still is risky and it still needs to be taken just as seriously. Nonetheless, um, it's there's many benefits to the patient. One, instead of doing a open craniotomy to take out a part of the brain that's causing seizures and to specify what that means, that means a long scalp incision. That means um, um, using a bone saw to remove a window of bone from the skull, opening up the leathery covering of the brain, and then taking out an area of seizure focus, and then closing all those layers up, closing up the leathery covering, replacing the bone uh, with bone, or putting the bone window back with bone plates, and sewing up that large scalp incision. Compare that to a laser ablation in which we make a four millimeter stab incision. We make a three millimeter hole in the brain, and we pass a one millimeter cannula down to the target. The healing and the recovery phase of the operation is very much quickened in laser ablation. Your average stay after a craniotomy and resection of a seizure focus in a hospital is anywhere from five to seven days. Your average stay after a laser ablation is one day. We usually watch you overnight, and if everything looks good, we send you home because the amount of... um, surgery you had to go through to get to the target is is minimal and it's something i i it's the phrase i like to use it isn't always easily translatable to the lay population but the 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 phrase i like to use is corridor related morbidity what does that mean well morbidity means all the pain and suffering and injury that occurs during surgery and corridor related means it's all the operation, all the pain and suffering and injury we have to induce just to get to where we're going. Um, laser ablation limits that, uh, eliminates that. It, it replaces those big corridors with tiny one millimeter corridors that get to the target. So they don't have a lot of healing to do. 
Um, so that's the big difference. The, the downside to it is that we can only ablate a moderate area at a time. And if you have a very large area that's causing seizures, you either need to approach it. If you insist on using it with laser ablation, you have to approach it with multiple ablations. Or you just do the open craniotomy and you can remove far more tissue with an open craniotomy. And when someone comes out of surgery after a laser ablation, what are you uh, looking for in the patient to make sure that the, uh, the surgery was successful? Well, in the immediate post-operative phase, I'm mainly looking for signs of complication or harm. I want to be certain that there's no reflection that um, there's been a blood clot or anything like that that has occurred. Because remember, we're doing, as opposed to open craniotomy, where we're seeing, you know, we're in there with our own two, 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 two hands. And laser ablation, we're looking at it through the MRI. So there can be so I'm always looking for any of those complications, and they very rarely occur. It's less than 1% of the time. After they recover and wake up, then I'm looking for any significant difference in the way that their brain is functioning as really reflected by their interaction with their parents and their interaction with their family, and mostly looking for the um, signs of seizures, and whether they're either still there or reduced or, or changed in any way. And do patients experience any pain as a result of the surgery, typically? Uh, they always have some little amount of pain. It's a very small amount of pain. It's usually handled with, with non-narcotic treatments like Tylenol or, or Motrin or something like that. The, um, as opposed to a, cran a craniotomy, which are typically on a couple of days of morphine or something like that to control it. So you, you mentioned that tuberous sclerosis is a complex disease, often with multiple areas of seizure activity. And obviously, any kind of brain surgery should be considered a last resort for patients. Within the TSC community, who should consider this procedure? And what other options should they explore before considering laser ablation? I think any patient who's already been, been considered for any epilepsy surgery uh, in sclerosis is technically a candidate for some level of laser ablation therapy. And it all depends on the size of that seizure onset zone and the number of them. I think the ones that are particularly good candidates for laser ablation are those with deep foci or as yet to be determined to be deep foci, meaning very deep down in the brain, places like the insula, places like the, temp the mesial temporal lobe, places like the orbital frontal lobe. Those areas are very good for laser ablation because we know that there's going to be very big operations to access those areas. Other good candidates are when we have a lot of ablations to do or a lot of areas to operate, a lot of seizure onset zones to operate on. If you have three or four areas that need to go, that's going to be a very large exposure because they're usually fairly far away from each other in the brain. But it's very easy for me to put four lasers in as opposed to do a big operation to expose those four areas. So those with multiple fo foci, those with deep foci are very good candidates. As far as who's a candidate for open operation when you have laser ablation as an option, those tend to be large, low bar sorts of operations. In other words, if the whole temporal lobe 
is part of the seizures, it's best to have that child do an open craniotomy. Or if there's a large tuber complex that takes up a, a whole few gyruses of, say, the predilobe, then that should be an open eye. Operation Because of the newness of laser ablation and its application for tuberous sclerosis, we're still trying to sort out who those candidates are. And another huge consideration, which I think gets ignored to some degree, is the family's preferences. What we can do is give the family odds of success at either craniotomy or laser ablation. And sometimes because of the size of the ablation zone for in, or the uh, seizure onset zone, for instance, the probability of succeeding with laser ablation is less than the probability of succeeding with craniotomy. But the pain and suffering aspect of it really motivates the family to do less surgery if we can. So I'll always give them options. Give them the option of a minimally invasive approach because we can always fall back on a craniotomy. We can always fall back on the older tools to treat the disease. It doesn't burn any bridges. Are there any age limitations to patients who can get laser ablation? There are no age, age limitations to those that can get laser ablation. There are some challenges in the younger child, especially in a child whose who's, um, skull bones have not closed yet because we rely on the rigidity of the skull to maximize the accuracy of what we do. However, if it's a large tuber and a very young child, uh, we have ablated those before. We've ablated uh, six-month-olds. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's more challenging, but certainly they're not prohibited from getting a laser ablation just because they're young. And you mentioned in determining the focus of the seizure, really wanting to avoid those eloquent zones that... In that control motion and language. Um, if you find that the seizure focus is connected to one of those zones, is that an automatic disqualification? Or in what instances would you consider still going on and doing the surgery, even if it might affect um, you know, uh, motion or language function? I think that it's a relative contraindication. And by relative, I'll qualify that. I think there are some children that are young enough, say less than three, that some of those functions can be um, uh, developed in other areas of the brain or those functions can shift over a little bit. Or most, most importantly, especially in language, the other hemisphere can start to take over the management of that function. Um, short of that, there are open operations that we can do to be more precise and take out part of the lesion and leave the lesion that's functioning behind because we have shown, well, neurosurgeons have shown, Dr. Weiner has I got a paper about this, about there are some tubers and tuber sclerosis that are functional and taking them out will hurt them. These days, um, depending on um, the circumstances, there is an additional arrow in our quiver in something called the responsive neurostimulation system or neuropase. Whereas before, we would have to leave that seizing yet functional part of the tuber behind 
we can now put a little electrode on top of it, install a little computer in the skull, and that system can read and learn the EEG coming from that electrode and can be taught to stimulate that area very, very, very low current to interrupt and stop the seizure, just like a pacemaker of the heart. And we can install those on children um, on a, a as-needed basis these days with very little complication. And how effective is that in um, interrupting or stopping seizures? That very much depends on what you're going after. It's designed to be a palliative surgery. In other words, it's designed to reduce the number of seizures and not cure them outright. But we have a decent number of cures because we're only because we're taking out most of the problem or ablating most of the problem and putting stimulators in where we shouldn't do the ablation or the resection. And therefore, I think that the way we apply the neural pace stimulator is a little bit more focused. It's always in combination with other therapies. So, you know, the the uh, studies are ongoing on how effective this can be, particularly in tuberous sclerosis com- uh, complex. But it's a tool that we have now that we didn't have a few a few year, years ago. Um, one of the big caveats is you can't get an MRI of your brain with a RNS system or a neural pace system installed. And children with tuberous sclerosis can sometimes have those SEGAs, subependymal giant cell astrocytomas, that subsequent MRIs or sequential MRIs are used to gauge when one needs to intervene on those growing lesions in the front of the brain. So it very much depends on the patient. You know, some kids don't have SEGAs that you have to worry about. Or you can treat the Sega and then put the RNS in. There's all sorts of options now. And most importantly, I think the data coming out now is revealing that cessation of seizures by whatever means are necessary is incredibly impactful to the to development of the child. Now that now that data is coming out, obviously in the tuberous sclerosis world, in a more rigorous manner. And I think, therefore, we need to be creative but persistent in exhausting all options to decrease the seizures, the development-harming seizures that are ongoing in these children with TSC, no matter their age. So how many laser ablations have you performed at Texas Children, both in general and specifically for uh, TSC patients? In general, I think we're up to about 250. I think that's the largest population anywhere in the world. Tuberous sclerosis, I think we're somewhere around 50 or 60. We're so busy, we don't count anymore. We uh, gotta look back on those records to know the exact number, but that's the ballpark. And how successful has those surgeries been in, in reducing or eliminating seizures, in your opinion? I think we're a work in progress in the sense of trying to perfect where we can be more effective and wider in our ablations or or more thorough. But I think we definitely are achieving our reduction, our 50% reduction line, which when you're looking at a palliative operation, you look at 
50% as your goal, and I think all of them are achieving that. There is a significant number of cures. I think the cure rate now is hovering somewhere between 25 and 30% of pure cures. But those are also dealing with patients that are extremely complex, where cure is cure even with open surgery is not going to be likely. So, so far, so good. Um, we've had one major complication of an infection um, out of our 50 or 60 pa patients that we've done. So, I think the risk or the benefit risk ratio of the operation is looking very promising. So anytime you're t talking to parents about um, whether or not they should consider this procedure, you know, what advice do you give them in making that decision and also in potentially talking to a younger child about what to expect with the surgery without, you know, potentially scaring them? Well, I think, I think t for the parents, the discussion is always framing the highly complex world of epilepsy surgery and tuberous sclerosis and to understand and to make, and to make certain the parents understand that um, the seizure onset zones and tuberous sclerosis not only can be multiple, but they can change over time and over years. And to not look at this particular case and this particular lesion as the total of epilepsy surgery for your child, but to look at it over the lifetime and understand that in multifocal tuberous sclerosis surgery, the probability that they're going to have multiple operations in their life is high. And if you're, do you want multiple craniotomies or multiple laser ablations, I think should be should be in that decision-making process. I'd rather do repeat laser ablations than repeat craniotomies. Generally, however, I think it's reasonable to suspect that a child with surgical epilepsy and tuberous sclerosis, which is multi, multifocal, is likely going to need one operation, one big operation in their lifetime. Um, but we may not need to do it right now. If we can get by with a smaller operation, get our goals accomplished with a smaller operation, now is the time to do it. But ultimately, and I don't need to tell the mothers this, um, urgent secession of the, two, uh, of, of the seizures as early on as in development is what should be the maximum overriding goal. Mm -hmm. So whatever it takes to stop the seizures early is going to be the most important factor. The second most important factor is how to do it. For the for the child, um, I um, I have a rather uh, open approach to the kids uh, when it comes to their operations. I will explain in non technical jargon um, that I'm going to put a light onto where your seizures are coming from and stop them and try to minimize some of the um, the fear related with those choices of words, but every kid's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge that I think um, 
you know, the proper explanation of brain surgery to children is one of those things that I think we'll never really master. Uh, but we can always try to improve our word choices and and try to keep it in terms that um, they understand. They everyone understands lights. Everyone understands laser lights. Mm-hmm. Even little little kids will understand that. So it's a fairly simple explanation in that in that regard. So you alluded a little bit to some of the newer research and breakthroughs in both TSC and epilepsy. Are there any recent breakthroughs in epilepsy treatment that really most excite you? I mean, I think we're living in such a great age. And now that we have mTOR inhibitors, it's a total game changer when it comes to treating TSC because we can get to the big problem and get to our other big problem, the epilepsy, indirectly. But it's been it has been shown to be decreasing the epilepsy burden. And in my world, I'm most interested in seeing what can be made of the promises of molecular biology and gene therapy. I think if we can find a way of using gene manipulation of shutting off a seizure onset zone instead of taking the risks of open surgery or taking the risks of laser ablation, then I think that's clearly preferable if it can be done safely. And, and there are many efforts out there to make that a reality that I'm eagerly waiting for. I think finding greater capacities for stimulation systems, I think, are going to be important. Uh, right now, the RNS system doesn't allow us to get an MRI of the brain, doesn't allow a lot of things, and it only allows two channels to be used at a time. I think you know, in the age of a new phone every year, <laughs> I, think, mm-hmm. I think some technological advancements can be done uh, there to improve that capacity. And another strategy dear to my heart is drug infusions. I think a lot of people know that there's a big pharmaceutical industry working on oral medicines. That makes sense. But what needs more development is things that we can put directly in the brain. We have been infusing medicines inside the CNS for you know 30 years now with various forms of spasticity and pain, et cetera, et cetera. And we can even put a catheter directly into the brain tissue itself and infuse medicines. That's been going on from the treatment of Parkinson's. Change a few parameters around and maybe we can put some microcatheters in these tubers and not have to take the risk of destroying them. Something called CED or convection enhanced delivery holds a lot of promise with a little port behind the ear. We can infuse the temporary medicine and maybe stop the deleterious effects of these lesions and the seizures that they are creating. Those are all minimally invasive, less invasive concepts that I have in mind. What That all may be 10, 20 years down the road. I don't know. Some of those are relatively close to development, but we'll have to see how, you know, how the results go mm-hmm. and how clearances go. Right now, my center is switching gears to use the new machine to do thermal ablation. You know, the, as I mentioned, the full prop, proper name of laser ablation is MR-guided laser interstitial therapy. And what that means is put a laser inside the actual brain parenchyma and you thermally destroy your target. Well, high-frequency ultrasound is another emerging technology that can thermally coagulate parts of your brain as well. And this time I can do it without an incision. You're just using multiple ultrasound beams all focused into one little area that they used ultrasound to break up kidney stones. Same idea. You use ultrasound to heat up a little area of the brain and you can destroy that area of the brain and improve the function. It's being done as an FDA cleared technology in the treatment of tremors. There's a particular area of the brain called the thalamus that if you lesion it, you can stop people with something called essential tremor. And that's been a uh, proven effective 
treatment in that world. We want to branch it off into epilepsy, especially subcortical epilepsies or multifocal epilepsies, for which TSC is one of them. And if we can do our laser ablation concept, but without having to put a probe in the brain, it makes it that much safer. We will have our high-frequency ultrasound within a year. So since you've moved to Texas, I've heard that you wear cowboy boots around the hospital. Is that true? Yeah. In actuality, the truth behind the cowboy boots was I had them all my life, even in Chicago. But oddly enough, in Houston, they still are conversation pieces. I just prefer boots all the time. And yes, I do wear them on these long operations in the hospital. Strangely enough, firm footwear is helpful to people that are on their feet all day. So the cowboy boots work perfectly. So finally... What's the most rewarding part of being a pediatric neurosurgeon, especially for helping those in the TSC community? I think the the biggest impact, the most rewarding aspect of my job is when we can so profoundly improve the development of a child. You only got one shot at development. Now, lowering seizures in the older population, and that's very important. I get gratification from that as well. But I think when you can watch a developmentally hampered child whose eager little learning machine of a brain is so suppressed by uncontrolled seizures. And you can take that break off of their development and watch it happen and watch them come back to clinic, different different kids speaking, sometimes walking or trying to walk. And the parents tell us she's a different kid. That's that's what I do this for. That's really, truly inspiring. And you and the work that you're doing at Texas Children is inspiring to us and to the whole TSC community. I really want to thank you for taking time to share your expertise with us and helping families make informed decisions about what the best care is for their kids when dealing with epilepsy. So thank you for your time. It's our pleasure. Our thanks again to Dr. Curry for sharing his expertise on laser ablation and epilepsy. Be sure to submit your questions for our follow-up podcast to tscnow at tsalliance.org, and Dr. Curry or I will answer them on our bonus episode. Well, that will do it for this episode of TSC Now. Our next full episode will be in July with a recap of the 2019 International TSC Research Conference. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Be sure to email your questions in for the Q&A episode to tscnow at tsalliance.org. Thanks for listening.